This is part one of a three-part non-promotional, non-CME disease education podcast series paid for by GSK. Speakers were compensated for their time. Welcome. My name is Dr. Jennifer Cottle. I'm a board-certified family physician. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. Hello, I'm Dr. John Oppenheimer. I'm clinical professor of medicine at Rutgers and a partner in Pulmonary and Allergy Associates. The purpose of today's podcast is to discuss real-world evidence or real-world studies. So to get us started, Dr. Oppenheimer, how would you define real-world evidence? Well, Section 505FB of the FD&C Act defines real-world evidence as data regarding the usage or the potential benefits or risks of a drug derived from sources other than traditional clinical trials. Well, there's not one definition of a traditional clinical trial, and clinical trials vary in design and conduct. The FDA generally considers a traditional clinical trial to have a research infrastructure that's separate from clinical practice to control for variables and increase data quality. Traditional clinical trials are usually randomized, double-blind trials in which both the investigator and patient are blinded to treatment or intervention. Thinking from a historic perspective, the development of new medical treatments relied on real-world experience, largely due to the fact that we had not yet have clinical trials that were randomized. Due to the increased cost and limitations to run a traditional clinical trial and the increase in available digital health data, the FDA has renewed interest in the use of real-world data. Under the 21st Century Cures Act, the Food and Drug Administration has been tasked with developing a program to evaluate the use of real-world evidence to support approval of new indications for approved drugs or to satisfy post-approval study requirements. Within this program, the FDA defines real-world data as data relating to a patient health status and or the delivery of healthcare routinely collected from a variety of sources and defines real-world evidence as the clinical evidence about the usage and potential benefits or risks of medical products derived from the analysis of real-world data. To give us more context, under the FDA's real-world evidence program, evidence from traditional clinical trials will not be considered real-world evidence. However, various hybrid or pragmatic trial designs, as well as observational studies, could generate real-world evidence. And where does real-world data come from, and how is real-world evidence collected? Well, real-world data can be collected both retrospectively and prospectively. For example, use of a registry data may involve prospective data, collection of clinical, economic, and patient-reported outcomes. They typically include a larger and more diverse group of patients than what's generally studied in, say, a phase three randomized controlled trial, which may better reflect clinical management practices and outcomes in the real world. Large pragmatic trials are becoming a more common real-world data source. These trials are designed to provide real-world effectiveness in a diverse patient group or population. These trials are perspective and randomized, typically conducted in clinical practice settings and target outcomes that are relevant to the population in question. Pragmatic trials may focus on a specific type of patient or treatment, and these patients, clinicians, and clinical practice settings may be chosen to maximize external validity and generalizability. These pragmatic trials are then able to provide real-world data that's relevant to clinical practice, including different treatments, titration, 
treatment algorithms that make sense to a patient or provider and also explore cost effectiveness. These data could then help to address practice or policy related issues. Other sources of real world evidence include electronic health records, claims and billing activities, product and disease registries, patient generated data, including home use settings and data gathered from other sources that can inform on health status, such as mobile devices. This all sounds very interesting, but why should we talk about real world evidence? First, as I mentioned earlier, the FDA Real World Evidence Program aims to focus on exploring the potential of real world evidence to support regulatory decisions about product effectiveness. As an example, recently the US FDA approved a new use for a transplant drug based on real world evidence studies. And this demonstrates how a well-designed, non-interventional study relying on fit-for-purpose real-world data when compared with a suitable control can be considered adequate and well-controlled under FDA regulation. This study, which supported the approval for this new indication, was non-interventional using real-world data from a U.S. registry supported by the Department of Health and Human Services. Not only is real-world evidence used in programs such as this, but it is also important to consider what real-world evidence gives us as clinicians. Real-world data may provide evidence for understanding outcomes of treatment, perhaps in patients that may be excluded from clinical trials, patients in real-world settings versus a research setting, and in patients whose treatment is not fully determined by a trial protocol or treatment guidelines. Real-world evidence can provide information on safety, effectiveness, adherence, research on healthcare systems, quality improvement, and cost effectiveness to inform decisions in everyday clinical practice. I'm excited to learn about real world evidence and how this can be applied to my clinical practice setting. First, can you elaborate on what ways real world evidence or real world studies differ from randomized control trials? Sure. Well, first to give background, randomized control trials are the gold standard for evidence-based medicine on the efficacy and safety of a medicine and are conducted in controlled settings with specific populations. Efficacy studies investigate the benefits and harms of an intervention under highly controlled conditions. Randomized control trials inform about efficacy of a drug through double-blind, double-dummy, strict inclusion criteria, defined exclusion criteria, adherence encouraged, frequent reviews, and intervention is strictly enforced and standardized. Effectiveness, however, or effectiveness studies examine the interventions under circumstances that are more closely approaching real-world practice. Real-world evidence informs about effectiveness through open-label, broad population. So in other words, eligible patients with limited exclusion criteria. They can have comorbid illnesses, and it's set in everyday clinical settings intervention is applied with flexibility. So quite different than a randomized control trial. Due to the controlled settings and specific eligibility criteria, randomized control trials may not be as generalizable to the real world practice setting, especially since the populations enrolled may differ from those seen in clinical practice. Randomized control trials also do not provide much data on interaction with comorbidities or concomitant medicines as well as adherence to therapy. In clinical trials, they may be intensive efforts that cannot be continued in clinical practice. In addition, the cost of conducting randomized clinical trials has been rising without an increase in the quantity of evidence obtained 
to support healthcare decision-making. Real-world studies aim to provide complementary evidence to randomized control trials. And while RCTs inform upon drug efficacy, real-world studies provide evidence of therapeutic effectiveness in the real-world clinical setting. You mentioned that randomized control trials may inform on efficacy and real-world evidence may inform on effectiveness. How do you differentiate between efficacy versus effectiveness? It's an important question. Efficacy, which can be defined as the performance of an intervention under ideal and controlled circumstances, has to be compared to effectiveness, which refers to its performance under real-world conditions. Why is it important to make this distinction? In order for an intervention to be considered effective in clinical practice, several steps must occur. Therefore, an efficacy trial can often overestimate an intervention's effect when implemented in clinical practice. In order for an intervention to be considered effective in clinical practice, several steps must occur. Therefore, an efficacy trial can often overestimate an intervention's effect when implemented in clinical practice. An efficacious intervention must be readily available. Providers must identify the target population and recommend the intervention and patients must accept and adhere to the intervention in order to be effective. That makes sense. Effectiveness is how an intervention performs in the real world. And in order for a medication to be effective, multiple barriers have to be overcome and many factors taken into consideration. Do you have an example of how real world evidence has demonstrated this concept? Sure. One of the key aspects of real-world studies is that they can complement results of randomized controlled trials and address gaps in clinical knowledge. For example, we know that in order for an intervention to be considered effective, patients must be adherent to the therapy. Adherence to a medication regimen is generally defined as the extent to which patients take medications as prescribed by their healthcare provider. There are many factors that affect patient adherence and thus the effectiveness of a medication. The full benefit of an effective medication will be achieved only if patients closely follow prescribed treatment regimens. Some factors that affect adherence in the real world include patients' lack of understanding of their disease, lack of involvement in the treatment decision-making process, and poor medical literacy. High medication costs, lack of transportation, poor understanding of medication instructions, and a lack of family or social support are predictive of non-adherence, as is poor mental health. This really highlights that when a great med is not used, it fails, or rather drugs don't work if patients don't take them. Tying this information back to real-world studies, these studies can focus specifically on the outcomes which are most important to patients and take into account real-world treatment adherence and compliance when considering the impact of a medication or treatment regimen. One example of this is asthma, where medical costs must be weighed against total cost. For example, a recent study by Yakubi and colleagues found that uncontrolled asthma will cost the US economy an estimated $300 billion in the next 20 years in direct medical costs alone. And this increases to nearly $1 trillion if costs due to loss of work productivity are included. Additionally, the impact of quality of life is projected to be equal to the loss of 15.5 million years with full health. These real-world evidence results inform us that utilizing evidence-based asthma management strategies by both healthcare providers to make treatment decisions as well as adherence by patients 
can reduce costs and improve overall quality of life. It sounds like one of the benefits of real-world evidence is that it can incorporate data from a broader patient population. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Randomized controlled trials are typically conducted with strict, defined patient populations, and patient selection is based on strict eligibility, specifically inclusion and exclusion criteria. Real-world studies, however, are performed in clinical settings and have patient populations that are more diverse and are aimed to provide more generalizability to clinical practice. This helps to provide data for real-world consideration on different treatments or treatment algorithms in patients whose treatment is not fully guided by a trial protocol or treatment guideline. Current guidelines may suggest a one-size-fits-all approach. However, real-world evidence may help to drive personalized medicine and cost reduction through evidence on adherence patterns or potential outcomes in a broad population in response to a specific medication and help us to understand patients that either do not take their meds or don't respond. Do you have an example of how you've utilized real-world evidence in your clinical practice? I do. We know that poor asthma control imposes a substantial burden on both patients and society through its association with poor health-related quality of life, an increased risk of exacerbations, mortality, healthcare resource utilization, and related costs. A study published in 2020 in the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology aimed to evaluate the prevalence, burden, and characteristics of patients with uncontrolled asthma attending respiratory specialty clinics in the United States. This multi-center, prospective, observational, cross-sectional study was conducted in adult patients with asthma. Eligible patients were recruited during scheduled visits to specialist pulmonary allergy clinics and were asked to complete an electronic questionnaire, which included standardized questionnaires to assess asthma control, like the asthma control test, and health-related quality of life, the St. George's uh, respiratory questionnaire. The primary outcome in the study was the proportion of patients considered as having either not well-controlled or well-controlled asthma, as evaluated by the ACT score, as you know, a scale of zero to 25, with higher scores indicating better control. In total, 53% of the patients had asthma that was not well-controlled based on ACT scores. Among patients treated with low to medium dose ICS lava or medium to high dose ICS lava combination therapy, more than half were also not well-controlled. Most patients, almost 80% classified as being not well-controlled, self-rated their asthma control as at least somewhat controlled or well-controlled. This demonstrates a clear disconnect between patient self-awareness and their level of disease control. This disconnect coupled with high prevalence of not well-controlled asthma among those found in routine visits and low proportion of study sites which routinely evaluate patients for asthma control at every visit might suggest that routine use of ACT or similar patient-reported outcome tools and objective measures of lung function may help to improve asthma management and disease control. In essence, if we don't, disease severity will be underestimated by both the patient and the doctor. This study highlights that while randomized control trials show efficacy of a drug, there's still a general lack of control based on real-world evidence, demonstrating that the lack of asthma control in asthma specialist clinics, as well as the lack of understanding of asthma control between both patients and providers, suggest the need for further treatment interventions and strategies to increase patient-physician awareness 
of patient asthma control. Again, not only is there a lack of asthma control, but there's a disconnect between patient and physician sense of control. One study published in 2021 in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice was a secondary analysis of US patient survey data collected as part of the Respiratory Disease Specific Program. The Respiratory DSP is a cross-sectional survey conducted annually to collect real-world data from physicians and patients and provides an established method to investigate patient characteristics and disease burden, as well as physician treatment practices in patients diagnosed with asthma. The study primarily looked at the level of concordance between physician and patient perceptions of asthma control in the four weeks prior to completing the survey. The physicians included were primary care physicians, pulmonologists, and allergists responsible for making treatment decisions for patients with asthma. Physician and patient perceived levels of asthma control in the four weeks prior to survey completion were categorized into uncontrolled, poorly controlled, somewhat controlled, well-controlled, and completely controlled at the five group level. Physician and patient responses were also dichotomized into well, that being well-controlled or completely controlled, and not well-controlled, that being somewhat controlled, poorly controlled, and uncontrolled. Notably, asthma was not well controlled in over a third of the patients as reported by both physicians and patients, and a fifth of patients were not in agreement with physicians' perceptions of control status. In a small number of cases, patients' and physicians' perceptions of asthma control were in direct opposition. Of note, only 21.8% of patients who self-reported their asthma as well controlled overall were classified by genus symptom criteria as having well-controlled asthma. In addition, almost half of the patients who consider their asthma well-controlled reported that it affected their daily life. This demonstrates a concordance between patient understanding of their control and physician assessment of asthma control. And this disconnect and the patient's misunderstanding of control put patients at risk of poor disease outcomes, suboptimal disease management, and inappropriate treatment use, such as underuse of preventative treatment and overuse of rescue medicines. This real-world study highlights a need for improved asthma management strategies to increase physicians' awareness of patients' asthma control, including increased patient education, assessing inhaler technique, identifying adherence issues or barriers, and overcoming clinical inertia. Do you mind sharing what some of the limitations of real-world evidence may include? For all non-randomized and retrospective data, the most significant concern is the potential for bias. Observational or database studies may also require substantial resources, may be inconsistently collected, or may have missing data that can affect statistical validity in the trial. Types of bias that may be observed in real-world settings include selection bias, where specific therapies may be prescribed based on observed patient characteristics, information bias with missing or invalid data, recall bias with selective recall or data collected, and detection bias, where an event is more likely in one treatment group versus another. It's therefore important to examine each real-world study individually for sources of bias or confounding variables. In pragmatic trials, diversity of patients and clinical practice settings may result in missing data or inconsistent information. 
The heterogeneity of a clinical practice or patient population may also result in the lack of translation to other clinical practice settings. Consideration should be given to the limitations as well as generalizability of results when interpreting individual study outcomes and applying them to everyday clinical practice. Thank you so much for that excellent review of all of these topics, real world evidence, randomized control trials. I think this is not only very helpful, uh, but it's useful as well. Um, and as a family physician, I know it's going to help my practice. Um, you know, of note in particular was just really understanding the difference between real world evidence and, and randomized control trials, understanding um, how they differ, pros and cons for each of them, um, and also what takeaways we can actually glean from real world evidence versus randomized control trials. So I do appreciate you going through all of that. And of course, last but not least, of course, the limitations of both is also very important to, to, to note. So thank you so much for, for reviewing, reviewing that. That was excellent. It's my pleasure. One of the things I often think about is the fact that real world evidence and randomized control trials really work hand in hand. Through real world evidence, we can come up with questions and then through it, we can develop hypotheses and rely upon randomized control trials to help us fine tune. And in so doing, develop better treatment algorithms. I really do appreciate the time and thanks for inviting me. Thank you.